Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 85th episode of our podcast, I interviewed David Chang, CEO at Gratify. If you're a member of the Boston tech community, there's a very good chance you know who David Chang is, as he's very involved from multiple angles. As an operator, he's been part of some amazing teams at companies that have all scaled and exited like TripAdvisor, MCube, and Ware. As an angel investor, he has invested in 40 companies, and one could argue that the most important role that he's played is one as a mentor and advisor to countless entrepreneurs. In his current position at Gratify, David is leading a company that is trying to solve a $1.5 trillion problem, that being student loan debt. Gratify gives employers the opportunity to make direct contributions to their employees' student loans, allowing them to pay off their loans faster. No doubt, it's a great benefit for sure. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of topics, like David's philosophy on paying it forward and why it is so important, the details behind David's background and a deep dive into his experience at TripAdvisor, MCube, and Ware, advice on whether or not to attend business school, the story of his own startup, which was like an early version of Instagram, all the details on Gratify in terms of its mission and how they're helping ease the burden of student loan debt, why he's bullish on the Boston tech ecosystem, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note, are you hiring? If the answer is yes, then you might want to consider adding a biz page to VentureFizz. It's the best way to engage with our targeted audience of professionals in the local tech scene. It includes an employment branding page, unlimited postings to our job board, content, and more. If you are interested in the additional details, send an email to info at VentureFizz.com. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with David. David, thanks so much for joining us. Nice to see you again. All right, so um, I was looking in the archives of VentureFizz, and it was a couple years ago. We actually did a uh, profile on you that got really deep. Uh, so I was excited to talk to you again and do this in more podcast form. But one of the things, you know, we titled the, artic- the article Definition of Paying It Forward, you know, David Chang, which... So generous for, of well, you to do that. But, you know, when I think of people, I mean, there's a number of people in the Boston tech scene that are just as gracious with their time their uh, you know mentorship like everything like like that help boister the ecosystem and you're definitely one of those upper tier people that appreciate that you know before this podcast I was talking to a colleague of mine I'm like you know anytime I emailed David he would always respond back like when I was running my recruitment firm I remember I would like hey do you know anyone for this VP of marketing search and you'd always throw like send me really insightful thoughtful responses of people so even going back to that to what you do with um, you know everything you've done for all the accelerators like tech stars and if you look at your LinkedIn profile it's like mentor 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 and then obviously as a, an investor angel investor so when I think of you I think about someone who uh, is the epitome of giving back so, or, or not having a job <laughs> so <laughs> the other way to so look at it why do you think it's important to do this type of you know mentorship uh, angel investing all the different things that you do you've built companies why is it important to give back now for, for me and the other mentors and advisors that I know, there's a really big part of looking for the next generation of talent. And so sometimes it's it's altruistic, right? It's the, oh, it'd be great if you could find someone to tackle a problem, and it's amazing when you get to do so. And and that's certainly part of it, right? And I think for, for a lot of other folks, and, and I'm in this category as well, we're in this business where that giving back while may not have an immediate payoff, there's a payoff five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now. And it's 
it's a direct connection when it's something like an angel investment. So that's 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 really clear. And then other times, it's one of those things where whoever you're working with and however they benefit, that that benefit that they have at that moment hits other parts of your world, your network. And so in my case, uh, for the last couple of years, I've been wearing one hat as an operator. Uh, advisor, one hat as an investor, and one hat as what I consider an ecosystem connector with universities primarily, mm-hmm. and uh, working very closely with both Babson and Harvard. And in those cases, almost all the time, you, it's really not even paying it forward, right? It's just working with someone, and then almost immediately, they're helping someone else that you know, mm-hmm. and there's this awesome ripple effect that happens, and, and I couldn't imagine doing it any other way. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, let's... We're going to talk about everything that you do, yeah. so we'll go deeper. But let's go way back. So, where'd you grow up, and you know, what were you like as a kid? Oh my God, that's, that is, that is way back. Uh, so, <laughs> if we rewind the way back machine, I'm actually not from this country. So, I was born in Taiwan, and through a, a long journey, ended up in New York for the first three years of my life. Uh, it was spent in Taiwan, and and my parents worked really hard to, to even get us to this country in the first place. So my dad came over first, and then after he saved enough money, my mom and I went over, and then my sister was born very shortly after that. And uh, and so I spent the bulk of my formative years in New York. I was actually in Flushing from about age 3 to, to 10, moved out to Long Island for the next couple of years, spent most of high school there, and then went up to school to go up in Corn- to, to Cornell. And so most of my childhood, I think of myself as a New Yorker, even though hopefully I don't have the accent. That's not a good thing. <laughs> right. I don't think you do. I worked hard to, to get rid of it. Now, you studied computer science at Cornell. I like, did. So, so what were, you, like, were you like always in the computers as a kid, or like what led you down that path? It, when, you know, it's like early on, I think my very first job that involved a computer was back in when I was 13 or 14 years old, maybe, and it wasn't, I, th- I guess I wasn't officially even working, and there was a print shop that was in my neighborhood, and they had this cool machine that was a, like one of the original Macs, you know, with like a, the black and white screen, and, mm-hmm. and the whole job there was creating resumes and brochures, and it was essentially using PageMaker, which mm-hmm. I don't know if anyone really yeah. remembers what that I was. I remember but, that. But you were creating this, these, these um, digital assets, and... And so I got to see what a computer could do then and kind of just got hooked on it. And so both it was fun. At the same time, when you created something, you could stamp out many versions of that. And so I think I ultimately became a software engineer because there's some sort of elegance around being able to do something once and having a really big impact. Right. And what did you do after college? I ended up graduating at a horrible time in the economy. So there was, I think I interviewed with 40 different companies I got two offers out of the 40. Uh, the two that I got were happily great companies. One was Oracle and one was Goldman. Mm-hmm. And it came down to where I wanted to live. And Oracle being on the West Coast and Goldman being on the East Coast was um, was just a better fit for me. And so I took on the software engineering role for Goldman and, and stayed there for seven years, which might be a little unusual for for people that are doing startups today, but my my seven years of experience, I worked for the same manager, and despite working for the same manager, I actually lived in like three or four different countries. And what did you learn? What was that like foundation experience like for you? Yeah, it's it's hard to encapsulate seven years of learning into mm-hmm. a, a soundbite, but um, but one was just how much fun it was to actually be at work and not in school. There was something that was really compelling about 
building something, working with a team, having a result, and of course, you know, getting paid along the way. Mm-hmm. But um, but a lot of the learnings was around how you build something, how you communicate it, the different roles that were there. I ended up playing both a software engineering role and a project manager role. I was a database administrator for a little while. And then at the very tail end of my experience, I moved a little bit more towards the business side when our our product lead ended up leaving to go to a competitor. And so I wore both the tech and the and the business hats at the same time. But yeah, just learning a ton just from doing. And so that was a, that was a pretty amazing experience. Why did you decide to go to business school at HBS? Yeah, I, I had always thought about going to business school. I think my first application was probably four years after uh, college graduation. Didn't get into my first choice. Applied a second year. Didn't get to any of those cho- uh, uh, those schools either. And then the, as a final Hail Mary in my third, third time, I applied to a bunch of different places completely changed how I wrote about the application. And so this is actually through, uh, at the time, Shereen was my girlfriend, but um, she really helped me think through like what I wanted to say. And so maybe this is a little bit of advice for anyone that's trying to articulate anything, is that the first series of applications, I had written the application in such a way where I think I wrote what I thought the other person wanted to hear. Mm. And as a result, the, the writing was completely devoid of any personality, right? Like anyone in the world could have written that. Like you're trying to use SAT words, you're trying to sound smart and all that. And uh, having no personality shine through, it's like, there's like, okay, well, guy seems fine, but there's nothing particularly special. And then the following year when she helped me rethink a lot of that, the content was essentially the same, but her advice was write this as if you're writing a letter to a close friend. You're gonna use different words, you're gonna share different things. And even though the content's relatively the same, the style is different, and by doing so, got into three out of the four schools. I think I got waitlisted from one place. And HBS happened to be one of the three that I got into. And thinking through what I wanted to do going forward, I thought I actually wanted to stay in financial services and working for a, um, a financial services institution. But coming to HBS was, for me, a great choice because it was the first time that I got exposure to a ton of different uh, people from different industries. And, and that completely changed the trajectory. And so had I not done the business school thing and just continued to work, I'd probably be still cranking away in New York, probably happy mm-hmm. in terms of what I was doing, but I would not have made the changes that, I, that I've made. I wouldn't be on the path that I'm on now. Now, if someone asks you for your advice today yeah. on business school, like what do you generally tell somebody whether or not they should attend? Yeah, I, I do get that question a lot, uh, both from undergrads and people that are considering going back to school. There, there's a couple great examples of when it makes sense to go back to school. So career changers, for sure, right? So you just want to do something else, and this is a qualification. Uh, sometimes it's the content that you learn, and sometimes it's just a different network, and so that, that, that part's great. Others have a very distinct gap that they perceive that they're filling, and sometimes it makes sense to go back, and sometimes not so much. Um, say you're, in my case, I was you know, pretty pretty technical I didn't have some of the broader business skills. And so by going back to school, at least I got to sit in the marketing class, got to sit in the you know, the general business classes. And it's arguable whether or not you benefit from being in those classes. Like I really took it to heart and studied really hard, tried to get the, the grades, tried to learn everything. Uh, in my office, I still have the case studies and frameworks, which I don't think I've opened in 10 years. But <laughs> the fact that it's sitting there just gives you this level of, of confidence. And, um, and so in those cases, I think it also makes sense. 
for for me it was probably more of the the just the two years off gives you the ability to just look at other things and so not not having that time I think it would have been really difficult to to know before entering school where I was going to go but I suspect that if someone's looking at going to school don't underestimate especially if it's a full-time program how much you will change in terms of your perspective and so that that was a pretty key thing and I think that's Today, when people go back to school, they should be open to that, right? Like business schools, maybe unlike some other graduate schools where the path really kind of does change, as opposed to if you're going to medical school, you're clearly you know, you're on the path of being a doctor or law school, you're on the path of being a lawyer. And, and for business, I think the number of places where you can end up are just, it's just really different. So it's something you should be open to. Now, the path you chose after business school was in the tech industry and yeah. in product management, right? Yeah. So how did you come to that conclusion? And, and this was 2001. Yeah. So right memory, around yeah. when the dot-com oh, yeah. industry was starting oh, to yeah. evaporate, yet you know you ended up at a software company that still had a very successful outcome. Yeah. Well, the timing of that was also completely horrible, right? Like between my two years of business school, everyone in between the two years, they were chasing these startup dreams. And, and, um, and I actually had a non-compete from... Goldman, it didn't make sense for me to just take some other role. And so I ended up working back at Goldman okay. doing research on enterprise software companies. And so uh, it was kind of a win-win. I got to stay in Boston. I got to dig deeper in terms of some of the companies that ultimately you know, I'd be, I'd be uh, looking to join. And then you know, Goldman, obviously, from their standpoint, got a summer intern that was doing some of the work for equity research. Mm-hmm. And, um, and in that particular case, for me, it was... It was a good summer, but everyone else changed the startup thing. Now, it flipped in 2001 when everyone graduated. Everyone was running towards more stable companies. And I was thinking to do the same thing. But after a year and a half of business school, it really was less appealing to go back to what I was doing before. And, and to be clear, my, my roll back when I was working before business school on a scale of 1 to 10, it was like a 9. I loved it. Like, yeah. I went in every day. Uh, there were days where I got in super early just because I couldn't, couldn't wait to start doing what we were doing that day and um but after seeing other things that very quickly dropped and so i couldn't imagine going back to do the same thing when i looked at companies locally the the main thing was just trying to find like the right size and the right group of people to to work with and uh ended up at edox and through dumb luck ended up finding a fantastic manager uh chris gardner coming out of that and uh and and so that that one sort of path or decision really shaped the rest of the career. Edox, that was like electronic billing and payments, yeah. right? Yeah, okay. yeah. I remember like back in the day when yeah. you were hiring, you would take out those big ads in the Boston Globe and the you know the employment section. And I remember they, did, they used to have like a big monster ad with their lava lamps. Mm-hmm. Oh, like, that's right, the lava lamps. Yeah, yeah. yeah, back in the day. But So they were acquired by Siebel. Yes. But that, that's where you cut your teeth in product management? It was, it was. And, and for me, thinking through what I had done before, at Goldman, I was in the financial service industry, but wearing a technical hat. This was almost flipping the function in the industry. So now I was in more of a businessy kind of role, selling into financial services and healthcare and telecom, and now playing a technical uh, or in a technical industry where what we were doing was we're building enterprise software. And so that transition was kind of a um, a hard one to begin with, right? You go from building to now you don't build anymore. You have to define the problem. And product management was um, was one of those areas where you have all this informal authority and no formal authority. Mm-hmm. So it's a big learnings in terms of like how you even get your, your job done. But um, 
but yeah, you get lucky sometimes where you work with some great people and, uh, and then you end up working with them again in later companies. Okay, so next stop was TripAdvisor. Yeah. At what stage was TripAdvisor? How did you connect with that company? Yeah, through a headhunter. Through really? A recruiter, yeah. Interesting. It was um, three years into uh, EDOCS. I you know, was having a great time. Now, the, the main thing that was different was our, we were selling to these really big companies where the mix between software and services was starting to, to change, where our success would be working. Uh, you sell a big deal, a you know, multi-million dollar deal, and 90% of the revenues would come from services, right? So as a software guy, that doesn't sit right because it's right. basically building it custom, custom, custom everywhere. And and the company was increasingly going in that direction and it just wasn't, you know, wasn't tied to what I really wanted to do. And so when I got the incoming call from a from a recruiter, there's like, hey, we got this interesting company. Um, it's in the travel space, it's consumer. And so from my standpoint, it was still a product role, but it was a much smaller company and it was instead of enterprise, it was internet. And so that that change was a really good change. But when you land at that kind of company, it's a completely different experience. The language is different. The velocity is different. And it went from a place where we were releasing software on a yearly basis and and now it was not yearly, right? It was all the time. In fact, I, I remember during my first week there, Steve Coffer, who was the CEO then, is still the CEO now, had said that... Uh, all right, great. On Thursday, we're going to release new software. And I was like, oh, God, my luck. You know, I joined the one week we release. He said, no, we do this every Thursday. <laughs> like, what? And, and so every new employee pushes something live by Thursday. And and just uh, you just learn so much from that velocity. Uh, and, and it's really the world of technology today, right? Just fast iterations. And, and it's really the first place that I got to see that upfront live. And how many employees were they when you joined and which products were you focused 30 on? 37. Wow. Okay. So yeah, think, really yeah. early. Yeah, it was really early. I was the, um, this was right after the ISC uh, acquisition. So the company was about 30 some odd people out in Needham. And I was, I believe the, they didn't really have anyone dedicated to product because it was like, oh, it was a luxury to have someone just focusing on product. Mm-hmm. And so I, I joined as a director of new products. And so I was the first, I believe the first real product person, uh, real full-time product person that they had. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I think some of your other some of your other guests may have been uh, Adam Medros or Dave Crowder. I don't know if you've spoken to them in the past. I'm sure you know yep, who they Adam. are. Yep. The, the funny story for both of them was shortly after I joined, we had a position open for something called a merchandising manager. And so they had both come in, done the interview, totally different people. And Steve pulls me aside, um, along with my, my manager at the time, to ask, well, these both these guys sound like really interesting. Should we hire them both? And I remember thinking, you're crazy. You're going to hire two people for the same job. That'll never work out. Right. And, and both of them had stayed with the company for another 12, 13 years. Yeah. Adam ultimately was their SVP of global product. Uh, David was general manager for Samaria Travel, um, and they had only both recently left, and now they're edX and Yeager. Yeah, yeah, and and in senior roles there, and so it's 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 awesome to see what talent does when they go to other places. So a common theme for like you know Edox was acquired by Siebel, TripAdvisor, you know was acquired while you were there, but then spun back out, went public, mm-hmm. and anchored tech company here, and then you go to this company called MCube, right, yeah. <laughs> which was at the forefront of the whole shift to mobile. Yeah. And the story that I remember from uh, the MCube days was the deal or no deal. Oh, yes. like, like, And it's back on TV now. 
<laughs> it is deal or no deal. So I just remember like this Boston company powers the lucky suitcase segment when it was like the consumer can dial in mm-hmm. and pick the lucky suitcase and someone ends up winning. Like I heard those like just crazy stories at night of you guys powering that and yeah. like behind the scenes for NBC or whoever. We, we did. It was, it was, it was a very exciting time to be at that company. And also just to be clear, like I, I, I think of myself as maybe the, an accidental entrepreneur and, and there are others that are who I think were really truly entrepreneurs. Uh, maybe I'm more of an operator than an entrepreneur. When I was at Edox, it was you know, 100 plus people. And so it had largely been, uh, the rails had been established when I joined, you know, I was one of other, a uh, few other product managers. And um, I'd left just before this, the Siebel acquisition, which then became Oracle, the um, after their acquisition. And then on the TripAdvisor side, it was right after the IC acquisition. So in terms of startup land, it was just a different beast altogether. Now, MQ was very much in the, we're adding 10 people a week, mm-hmm. hyper growth. We're in a market that's completely different. You know, from my standpoint, it was a little bit of a, a interesting fit because while Edox was internet enterprise and TripAdvisor was consumer internet, this was mobile enterprise. And so the selling was really similar. Mobile was just exploding. This was a time where we were doing, I think, around $6 million in revenues, top line. And then the year after, the next year was 80-something. So like 12x growth in terms of revenues. And so it was just absolutely exploding. My my journey there was actually through the same person. So Chris Gardner was the same manager that I had. And so when he had joined, along with two other people from um, from actually Edox, they, uh, they were like, all right, this is just this big opportunity. Got to get more people on board. And... Uh, I almost didn't join. I think I had actually called Chris to say, you know, I'm going to stick around here. And, um, and I got to his voicemail. And then by the time I got through to him the second time, it changed my mind. So <laughs> and ended up ended up joining. But it was, yeah, it was. it's a whole other group of really interesting people there. And, and again, some of it's luck and some of it's you know, being at the being at the right place at the right time kind of thing. But, um, but yeah, just so much of, I guess, technology is about being in the right place at the right time with the right people. Well, as I say, the right people, right? So the people that came together to form MCube, it's very well known in the Boston tech ecosystem that, you know, that team has done great things post-acquisition by VeriSign. So why do you think that, like, you know, there's always the PayPal mafia in Mm -hmm. the Valley and then in Boston, it's pretty much like that's probably the the biggest mafia-esque Comparison that we have. I'm sure there's others, but that's probably the biggest one. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would. It's it's closest to me. I don't know if it's the biggest, right? Like if you look at HubSpot and yeah, that's true. Some of the other some of the other companies here, they very much have in their DNA this maybe paid for is the way to describe it. Describe it, or it's a, a your next thing. We want to support your next thing, and uh, and it was very much the case at MQ. And I think some of that velocity or really mobility. From company to company comes from the fact that when you work with some people, you have this this team that works really well together, and you get to jumpstart some new venture. And so, what changes is the the business and the business card that you have, and and maybe the target market. But you end up having this this proven set of people that can do something, and that's such a leg up, right, compared to other places. So, yeah. it was uh, yeah, it was a it was a pretty pretty unique time to be there with some unique people. Yeah, no, and it's obviously has paid it forward with all yeah. the investments that people have made and other companies have been created that are MQ alum. Yeah. And like you said, the HubSpot, all these people that are kind of paying it forward just helps build up the ecosystem to such a greater level. 
Now, from there, your business card did change to did. founder of a company. So it was Mobitious, but yeah. what, like, what was the original ver- like vision you had? And then it became more consumer. It did. It did. And that was that was this strange time when just before the iPhone and smartphones really had taken hold, this time where ringtones, I mean, this is a little bit of the, the deal or no deal stuff where, you know, at MCube we had these businesses that were were mobile powered, but um, mobile was changing so quickly that the business also had to change really quickly that, that at the time, the genesis behind that was there's all this content out there that needs to be cataloged. And on paper, the whole idea behind this was take ringtones and wallpapers and, down, and and all that stuff that's really hard to find and create this common directory where you could discover it all and buy it all. And this is before a lot of user-generated content was out there. And so the idea of the company was to, to in essence, take all this content, apply sort of a TripAdvisor kind of view to it. And so for me, the it was sort of taking experiences from both TripAdvisor and MCube and applying it and moving it together. And so... You know, we worked on the business plan for a little bit. I, you know, arguably it was not the best decision, but over the course of a weekend, went from quitting a full-time job to on the 31st, starting an unfunded uh, startup on the 1st, uh, <laughs> and then having our daughter on the 2nd. So that ah. uh, was a weekend that... Perfect uh, was, Yeah, exactly. I don't know so exactly what I was thinking. So that was that was some, some long, long sleepless nights there, but... Um, but at the time, yeah, I joined one other person that had been brewing the idea and was working out of, out of Northbridge. He was brewing the idea and uh, came in as his co-founder. And, and so we worked on that for a little bit. Very quickly pivoted. Almost almost less than 30 days after we got it funded from, um, uh, we were funded with $4 million, that we found that there just wasn't enough traction there. And so we very quickly moved into mobile photo sharing. And so we rebranded the name of the company to Snap My Life, which I believe was named because we had talked to a set of 14-year-old girls that were sitting across from us at the ground round and floated four names by them. And that was the one that actually resonated. We're like, okay, we'll just go with that one. That the, is uh, awesome. Yeah, it's the, the ground round that's next to uh, the Needham gas station. <laughs> and uh, that's how we came up with the name. And so it was, domain was available and, and we shifted just like that. And you were pretty much an early Instagram Yes, right. It was. It was so timing, right? But you know, timing I mean, it was, was timing was way off. And photo had, sharing, but I mean, the device yeah. wasn't there yet either. In terms of, you know, yeah, we made a lot of mistakes there. Like, like we pivoted from the use case of it's sharing with the world, like Instagram, to the oh, I'm going to share it with a small group of people, like you know, send pictures of kids to your parents, kind of thing. And so, tons of mistakes in terms of just chasing too many different things. But, um, but yeah, almost all of our competitors at the time also just imploded and we just couldn't get it right. We had users at some point in every single country in the world, right? Wow. 191 countries or so. And so there was this global community, but, but hard to monetize. And yeah. so it was really hard for us to even figure out how to get to the next level. So we raised a little bit more money and then ultimately half the company, uh, we let go of half the company and I was actually in that half, right? Because all the direct consumer pieces. And then we sold the company at a loss uh, later on. It was mainly an asset sale. Yeah. But you live and you learn. Well, and then you landed back into another great group of people yeah. that built another great company, Where, mm-hmm. uh, so, so what was your role within Where, and obviously what yeah. transpired with the acquisition of that company? Yeah, I remember, I remember when we let go of everyone at Snap My Life, or half the team at Snap My Life, and it was in July, and you sort of go into a little bit of a, 
you know, dark place sounds too dark, but you go into like this, oh my God, this is terrible. Am I going to get a job again kind of thing? And then you know, take a little bit of time to reassess on what you want to do next. And then you cast your net and you talk to recruiters, you talk to colleagues that you used to work with, and you talk to some venture firms that you've developed some relationships with. And, and through David Beisel, actually, who was at Van Rock at the time, mm-hmm. who I'd met actually through Adam Medros at TripAdvisor, David originally, when he was graduated from Stanford, was, was thinking about, well, what do I do for the next step of my career? And so that was my original conversation with him. So at this point, he had landed at, at Venrock, and he put me in touch with Walt Doyle, uh, the CEO of Ware. And there wasn't even an open position. It was more of the, here's what I'm doing, here's what I'd like to do. And uh, it turns out, from Ware's standpoint, it was it was sort of a unique role that they had never really even put together a job description because they, they didn't think anyone had like that set of skills sort of in, in one person, but they were looking for someone with both B2B and B2C that had been on big companies and small companies that knew both product and marketing. And mm-hmm. so it was it, uh, after a couple of conversations with Walt and some deep tire kicking with the rest of the team ended up joining as head of product. And, uh, and that was one scenario where you, you know, again, you kick the tires really deep on, on the company. And this was for me, the, I don't think I knew anyone else at the company, which is, maybe one person I'd met before, Doug Hurd, who's a co-founder of Clipped. And at the time, I think I was trying to sell to Doug many years ago. It was, it was probably back in the Mobitious days, right? We were trying to sell him something along those lines. And um, and so for me, jumping into a brand new company, a whole set of new network and new new group of people was uh, was a little bit of a leap of faith. And so that's why you got to kick the tires a little more deeply. But that turned out also to be a, a, a terrific experience. My entire product team there ended up also just creating their own companies. Like the whole the whole set of them are CEOs of their own thing these days. Yeah, so that's another like spider web or yeah. mafia. Like where you, you guys, had, a lot of the people from where had your own like fund, like the where fund is something that was an investment vehicle that people, so again, giving yeah. back to the ecosystem. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's it's very generous to say giving back. I think for us, it was, it was, well, it was more of the... Um, financial gains, hopefully, of making yeah, smart yeah, investments. Yeah. But you, know, you could just yeah. all do it yourself, but you kind of pulled your money to maybe write bigger checks. It it, it, it was. And, and the reason we had... It was a really small uh, fund. And actually, actually we, um, Shereen, my wife, ended up running the... Was the GP on that. And... The main reason why we had pulled that together was that we were doing all these individual angel investments kind of ad hoc and just made sense to, oh, if I'm talking to a company, you should be talking to the company. Well, there's other expertise. And and a lot of it was just pooling some of the deal flow together. But I suspect even more than the financial returns, it was more of just another way to get to work with the same people that you know you work well with. Yeah. Let's shift gears a little bit. So, you know, Angel investment yep. is something that you're also known for. Um, so how did you end up getting into, you know, writing your first check? And what advice would you give to others that are considering, you know, becoming an angel investor? Yeah, I think there's a wide range of angel investing from the the ones that do it very methodically, that really treat it like a business. And I'm thinking of folks like Gene Hammond and Joe Caruso, right? Mm-hmm. They... they you know, it's, they're institutions. Yeah, they're, but, but it's their own checks, yeah. right? And and, and so they they bring a whole different level of, um, of professionalism to it. There's one side, and then there's the other side, which is probably purely philanthropic, right? So if you're in the in that stratosphere, which very few people are, and I'm, I'm certainly not, where you're making angel investments because you, there's there's good that that's maybe truly paying it forward, right? And right. 
And most other people in terms of AngelList will kind of sit in between where the other drivers are. They either get to get in an industry where they get to flex some of their um, their mental muscle, right? And so it's awesome if I know digital media, now I get to invest in digital media. It helps you stay plugged in. Or they get to flex some of their their uh, contacts, right? And so they're, they're Rolodex, using a super old term. But if you know people in industry, fantastic. You can jumpstart another company if you can put them in touch with so-and-so who's at this company or so-and-so that's you know at a supplier, you know, whatever those things are. And so angel investment kind of sits there. And my first angel investment was actually with a company where when I was looking for a job, ended up not being the right fit, and but liked the idea so much that uh, Shri and I both wrote a check to the... <laughs> The, the founder and uh, in that case that was the first investment that we had ever done and it was sort of just by you know a little bit of a little bit of luck a little bit of of thinking that went into it and some analysis but not not a ton and so I don't think we it was a super conscious choice it was just something that we we had done and so that was the first check now if someone's considering becoming an angel investor like what what should they think about as far as you know getting into yeah, I think I think the the world of angel investments changed a lot since we wrote our first check um, so many years ago. There's there's definitely ways to get involved today that will avoid some of the the downfalls of kind of going it on, on your own. So, fan of syndicates where uh, you get to work with a lead that may have more deal flow or more experience in a particular industry. I am a big fan of uh, groups at least getting together and learning from those groups. Now, if I were an entrepreneur, raising from an angel group is a different kind of thing, right? And there's some different dynamics around that. But for angel investing, I think it's a good way to get looped in and seeing, you know, dipping your toe in the water and seeing whether or not that's something you want to do. And especially if you have other colleagues in the industry, much like the Wear team, where you want to work with them more closely, it's just, it's a great, it's almost like a club, right? It's like, such an interesting thing to do and at the same time you get to pick up to see whether or not you want to do it. I think after you do a couple of these, then you can start looking at, well, do I want to do more and have a thesis around it? And I think a lot of people who are angel investors never even get to the, the, the place where they have a thesis and all that. It's probably just more, I've got this much allocated. I'm happy to invest in things that aren't you know, your typical uh, investment and, and they treat it as this, this extra thing on the side, but I don't think they, they get really methodical about how they approach that got it okay well let's catch up to where you are yeah. today so uh gratify yeah. so you're a ceo um what led you to the point of you know becoming an operator again and then what yeah. was it about gratify that attracted you here yeah i ended up after after paypal so we got where got acquired by paypal and we grew the company a little bit and ended up in a place where the very short version of the story was eBay and PayPal were separating at the time and approaching very two different strategies. And the the PayPal strategy was all about this horizontal of, of enabling payment for a lot of different scenarios, a lot of different use cases. And and so as a result, the original Wear team that we were down in um, downtown Boston, we let go of a decent number of the folks there, and uh, I was also included in that mix. Uh, maybe it was a common theme of getting myself fired from places, <laughs> but um, but due to the the business strategy, we had changed quite a bit. And at the same time, uh, PayPal also acquired a number of other companies, including the Padian uh, mm-hmm. as an acquisition. Where where again, Chris Gardner, my 
boss at two of the other places was one of the co-founders there. And so And the founder of Edogs, right, Kevin? Uh, yes, Kevin was the founder of Edogs, Chris was the head of product, mm-hmm. and uh, and so a lot of the same a lot of the same folks. And so in that PayPal world where Chris and team actually still are, uh, Kevin, Chris, Jed Rice, uh, Rob, uh, and a whole, you know, a whole bunch of others, mm-hmm. they um, they're continuing the mission on on the PayPal side. So for me in the last three years, I've really spent a third of my time working as a an advisor, like really rolling up the sleeves. I like to call it building, right? It's it's ranges from big stuff of hey, where do we take this one particular company? Uh, to I'm going to sit in the booth with the founder and pass out brochures, right? To really get a, a feel for you know what's working in the market. And so that part, I don't think I could ever not do. And so that that was just a part of it. Uh, another third of the time was essentially angel investing, advisor Flybridge. I ended up doing a bunch of stuff with uh, Boston Syndicates, where I'm, an, uh, I'm an, a syndicate lead, and um, and so that was you know a chunk of time. And then the last chunk of time, that last third was probably the area that maybe I'm I was spending the the most mental energy on, and maybe that's an indication of where the passion was. And this was just broadly connecting with people. And so this is where all the the mentorship stuff is, right, with the the mentors at, at Techstars and Mass Challenge and and working with universities were led the Babson Summer Venture Program also at Harvard have been an entrepreneur in residence for the last four years. And that's really just a, a glorified kind of mentor position as well, right? But you get to work with student entrepreneurs. And then through that, ended up connecting with a lot of different parts of the ecosystem. And, uh, and there's a whole bunch of, of nonprofits that are also in the space, but all have entrepreneurship at, it, at its core. Did that for three years and then end up in a place where I thought about, do I do I continue the next three years? So I was thrilled running around Boston, riding my bike and mm-hmm. and having meetings and, and not um, and really kind of just doing my own thing. But the thought of if I do that three years from now, six years from now, 10 years from now, was it enough? And while it was a ton of fun, I couldn't really point to anything really tangible that I was working on that I could be really proud of, mm-hmm. and and it's not to say the efforts weren't weren't in and of themselves worthy. It was just really hard because you were time slicing everywhere. And so whenever I dug into something, I always wish I had more time. Right. Like one of the most amazing experiences I had was running the Babson Summer Venture Program. You work with these founders that are absolutely incredible. And so while I'm an accidental entrepreneur, these folks are not right these are people that in high school in junior high they've got these ideas and they get to Babson and, mm-hmm. and the program was open to Olin and Wellesley as well that um, that you get to work with these these amazing individuals that have these ideas and even if the idea itself isn't one that's going to be the end-all be-all you know it's worth investing in their time because if this isn't the one the next one's the one mm-hmm. and and in doing so it was just like oh god I would love to do more and more of this and so I started leaning in but that was like one of twelve things I was doing, and so I couldn't couldn't center on 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 the single thing. And so, a couple months ago, reached out, started cast a wide net in the Boston ecosystem. And this is maybe advice for anyone that's listening to this: is that there are a ton of resources that are out there, and and if you don't feel like you're connected, you are actually very close to other people that are connected. And so, as soon as you move a little bit and, and insert yourself into one circle, you get. Ex, uh, exposure to like everyone within that circle and so it's it's actually relatively easy to do so and so in in my case I reached out to a couple different people ended up um, looking at a couple different opportunities and found this particular one where I think it's a unique example of 
when passion meets opportunity. So Gratify works with employers to help their employees reduce the burden of student loans. And I hadn't realized at the time, when I was in college, it was a little bit different, but I hadn't realized at the time the depth of the problem. And in working with both Babson and Harvard, got to then see firsthand some of the choices that people make coming out of school and how, how much debt they get into. And so when the opportunity came around to join Gratify, it was really the confluence of a number of different things. It was one, it was in a space I was really passionate about. Two, it had a big more or mission orientation. Three, the, the opportunity continues to grow. Like every single year that goes by, the problem gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And so there's more need to solve it. And, um, and so it really was the confluence of like a handful of things there where like there is just an obvious choice. There's really nothing else that I would rather be doing. And so I, I hung up the, the retired hat, I guess, <laughs> and joined, uh, and joined in, in November of last year. All right, so Gratify is working on this problem that when I was doing my research, I didn't realize it either. I knew it was a problem, but I didn't know it started with a T. $1.5 trillion yeah. student loan debt problem is staggering. And then Gratify just published an infographic that said two-thirds of that debt is like women. It has two-thirds of that. So men are one-third of that $1.5 mm-hmm. trillion, so $500 billion. Yeah, it definitely disproportionately impacts Why? women and minorities. The well, if you look at the overall overall debt, the the number of people that are graduating today from just undergraduate schools with debt is is pretty staggering, right? So seven out of ten people, and so most wow. people coming out of school will carry some amount of debt. I think the average is twenty six thousand or so, and um, and there's a really wide distribution in terms of where that debt is held. There's some universities. And I actually just discovered this last night at an event that we were at. There's some universities that have taken it upon themselves to almost eliminate the problem themselves, where they figure out how to make it work in terms of financial aid, and and um, and so that that part's amazing. And so you know, less than ten percent, we'll say, uh, or at those schools, less than ten percent of their population graduates with any sort of debt, which is unbelievable, and that's that's really unique. But in the most part, when people graduate from these schools, they they have these obligations and the only way that they can pull themselves out of this situation is to get education um, look for more appealing job opportunities and the only way to do so is to take out debt and women and minorities in particular the the amount of debt that they take on based on their own personal situations it's this sort of um, problem that then magnifies itself is that they're in a position where the only way that they can go is to take it out. And so it's almost like there's there's very little choice. Yeah, no and choice. when you look at the numbers coming out, that, that's absolutely the case. And so what happens then is when you end up taking out loans, it's pretty clear you don't get to invest in other things you would normally get to invest in. You take longer to buy a house. It takes longer to save up in terms of 401k. It, uh, it just ripples through like everything in terms of how you're set up for the rest of your, your, your career. And so the... The thing that we're trying to do is address it through employers. And so our bet is that since employers are the primary beneficiary of an educated workforce, that we use the employers as a way to chip away at this problem. And today we work with over 600 employers, uh, which is about twice the number from last year. And so the, uh, the market's grown quite a bit. And, and our bet is by helping their employees pay down those student loans faster, 
consolidate loans, refinance them with better interest rates. There's a lot of different ways that that uh, graduates today can make their financial wellness better. And then for folks like me and perhaps you, where we don't have any debt, but we're now worried about the next generation, mm -hmm. we also have ways to help save up, like 529 plans. And then the employer at the same time also contributes to to that. And so we're, we're trying to chip away at, at two different ends of the spectrum. So this is an actual benefit that employers are providing employees. They are. Where they can get a favorable rate to consolidate their student loans to hopefully a lower interest rate. Yeah. And then you also have it where, uh, is it like, is, is it like automatically deducted from the employee's uh, paycheck that goes yeah. towards the student well, loan? or is So the, the way that works is, um, and they will give a really concrete example. Yeah. One of our first customers is uh, PwC. Mm -hmm. right? So as a PwC employee, say you just graduate from college and you, you sign up to, uh, to, to join PwC, the way our student loan paydown product works, and we have three different products, and the student loan paydown product works is when you when you join as an employee, you get an email invitation that comes from from us and say, "Congratulations, PwC uh, wants to help you pay down your student loan. Sign up for a Gratify account, and then connect your student loan servicer account to this account, and then PwC will then contribute that uh, hundred dollars a month." And so that's that's actually what they contribute, and. Uh, and it's open to you know, a, a number of their employees. And so they will continue to pay that for, I believe in, the, in their case, for six years, right? And so that, that's a big dent off um, the typical student loan. And in that case, the employee actually does not contribute anything other than what they would normally contribute. So let's take the average example again, $26,000 worth of loans. Uh, it's, let's say it's a 10-year loan period, you'll continue to make your, say, $300 a month payment to that loan servicer. And now every single month, there's another 100 that is being directly deposited um, through Gratify through from PwC. And that completely changes the trajectory of like how quickly that gets paid down, right? So you 10 years could shorten it by another three years. It would be like you know, less, than, less than seven years. So it's similar, so, like if you make an extra mortgage payment a year. Like that's precisely that, it. Yeah. Okay. Got it. That's exactly it. And and then our contribution program for 529s works in a similar sort of way. And if you have a 529 plan every single month, the employer will then contribute to that. And so in addition to any contributions that you be making to your 529 plan, this is above and beyond what you're doing. Wow. I mean, it just... Makes a lot of sense. It's it, a great benefit. It does, yeah. And some of the employers that are doing so are are, um, are leading employers. They not only value their their workforces; it's a way for them to attract new employees. Right. This, this is a pretty big, big benefit. And then retain existing ones, right? And there's lots of different ways that they can be set up. They could be graduated programs where the contribution amount increases the longer you stay. Um, there are other ones where the, the sort of like one-time events where they can contribute a little bit more, but there's a lot of flexibility in terms of how employers are doing this. And depending on what their specific goals are, we can adjust our, our plans to, uh, to, to account for that. Well, I think it's, as far as the attraction side, it definitely, I mean, just today alone, I had a meeting and there was a Northeastern co-op in the meeting Yeah. and we were just talking and like, so what are you doing later? I'm like, oh, I'm going to interview the CEO of Gratify. I'm like, oh, what does Gratify do? And I explained and she perked up. They like, they do what? They help you pay off your student loan. Like she just immediately like just was 
interested in learning more. Yeah, right? no, it's it's uh, no. Th- thank you for thank you for <laughs> being a referral for us. That, um, it it is one of our one of our challenges is that the the market. I think most employers have some sense of the problem, but I think most employers don't have a sense of the magnitude of the problem. And so when we go in to talk to C level, you know, VP of HR, CHRO, CEOs, they they generally recognize, oh yeah, this this must be an issue, but they don't realize like how many of their employees are actually dealing with this issue. Yeah, it's so stressful. That's, that's yeah, the 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 percentage is bigger than they think. The range is also bigger than they think. You know, some of them think it's just a millennial problem. While they they face a lot of this, there are people that are that have loans in their thirties, their forties. The Journal just had an article a couple of weeks ago about people in their sixties that are co-signing loans, and so now it's hitting multiple generations. And 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 so, if anything, the problem is just getting bigger and bigger. And so, a lot of the urgency and the focus that you have around people here, of how do we how do we jump into this and, and, and begin solving some of it? And so that's that's what we're about here. Now, this was a, a startup that was based here, but acquired by yeah. First Republic Bank. Yeah. So, uh, what's um, like what's the plan? Like, what's the scale of the operation now, and what's the plan moving forward? Yeah. So, the brief history of the company is um, the founder, who was actually a, a Babson trustee, saw this problem firsthand when he was in school. And I've actually uh, I've actually never met him. So, when he had created the company. The concept was really straightforward. Like, here's a problem. I'm seeing the problem. Let's see what we can do to solve it. And First Republic happened to be uh, among the first customers as well, so some, somewhat similar to PwC, that um, when First Republic brought this benefit to their employees, they were also shocked at the the immediate traction. So I believe, in, and uh, I might be off by a little bit, but but generally in the right direction, that um, almost a quarter of their employee base registered in the first 24 hours, right? And so I don't know if it was a quarter, if it was close to 20% or whatever that number was, but but a, a huge number of people overnight were like, oh, it's a problem. And so when when the CEO of First Republic, Jim Herbert, saw this, like, wow, we're, this is really on something. And so I think it was a really eye-opening thing for him to just know how much of his own employee base was facing that. And then in terms of where it dovetails really well with the mission of First Republic is that this is a really complimentary service in terms of, you know, we're, we at Gratifier out there work with employers to help chip away at this problem through like that employee base. And from First Republic standpoint, they're all about the best levels of client service and the exactly the employee that has worked really hard to bring on, uh, you know, increase their opportunities and take on this debt are the ones that would make really good clients as well. And so there's a really good complementary effect between the two. And so three, um, back in 2016, the tail end of 2016, First Republic acquired Gratify. And since that acquisition, you know, we've continued to grow the company quite a bit. The First Republic has been a phenomenal partner and um, and I'm not just saying this because it's being recorded. I've I've seen some corporate parents, you know, having lived through a couple acquisitions myself, that that uh, that are not that do not have the same velocity, right? So sometimes you're just a PL, you're just a book of business. Sometimes you're just a raw asset where they're like, okay, I'm going to take this asset, plug in somewhere else. The amount of emphasis and focus and support that we've gotten from First Republic 
has been amazing. And so they are absolutely the right partner in this space and couldn't be more psyched to be part of the family. You know, you're, we obviously talked about your role as being a mentor. Yeah. Like, so who do you count on for mentorship or advice? Like, who, who do you talk to for? Yeah, you know, it's something that um, I think everyone needs a mentor and everyone needs people to rely on. I think um, sometimes the mentorship relationship is more of a classic one where it's someone that's done something that you haven't done before. And so it's a really clear um, clear knowledge transfer, right? And, uh, and I found that a number of the folks that I've reported to in the past, that I've worked for in the past, have been those mentors like Chris Gardner, you know, I'll mention him you know, multiple times. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so you learn from, from people that are like that. There's some other folks that are in the industry where you get to, you know, maybe it's not a single mentor and it's more of the, I looked to that person because they have a certain influence or an expertise that I can draft off of. And, uh, and then you have folks that are in that category. I'd actually put Shereen in that category, right? And though, um, you know, I often rely on her to to uh, to gut check me, and, and 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 so bouncing ideas off of someone like her is also kind of amazing. And so it's this floating group of people, depending on on where and when, that I end up relying on. And I guess one other one other thing that I've noticed, and this was true even when I was in my twenties, was that the mentor mentee relationship is not is absolutely not always the classic. Like I've been there before, and you haven't. Uh, when I was younger, I had a number of people that I reported to that, uh, oddly enough, they considered me to be their mentor, which is just a bizarre thing. But it was because I had a certain um, a certain level of insight and just interest around kind of helping them fix something. And so, mm-hmm. I I uh, I also see some of the younger folks that I I you know they maybe consider me as the mentor, but half the time I'm tapping on them to keep me honest and. And sometimes it's just a mirror, right? Just a reflection in terms of like where you are and, and they're able to do so. And it's just part of the reason why you know, working with students is so, so powerful. And, and it really is honestly not a pay it forward kind of thing. Like you may give a little advice, but they give you an insight and then you learn from them. And so if you're learning from them, you're being mentored, yeah. right? And, and, and so that, that happens all the time. Now you've been part of the Boston Tech ecosystem for several years, so you've seen kind of an evolution. Yeah. Where is it at today? Uh, like, where do you think it really shines, and where do you think the areas for improvement still exist? Yeah, I, I think the the biggest downside, at least that I've seen in the last couple of years, has been this perception that the tech ecosystem, you know, it's a hard place to build a company. Right? I hear that hear that sometimes, and and I don't know whether or not it's a grass is greener on the other side kind of thing. And so when I've when I've traveled to the West Coast and I've traveled outside of the U.S. The, you land and you start talking about startups and, and there is this perception that, oh, you have all this great stuff that's happening here as well. And so, but when you talk to people here, they seem to think that the great stuff is happening elsewhere. And so I, I do think one of the, that, that is a really tough perception. And, and so while the scale of what is happening here is not on the same magnitude as, as of, of this, you know, the Valley, that there are these pockets where those pockets are, you know, it's got all the great ingredients and, and what I'd love to see is take advantage of those pockets and be really good at them, right? Whether it's robotics or biotech or education and, um, and get that flywheel going, right? Of new idea, veteran entrepreneur, capital that's in there, the ecosystem that supports and, and, and that whole cycle doesn't need to encompass every single industry. And so from a Boston perspective, 
I feel like it's been beaten up more than it should have been beaten up, or maybe the perception that it's been more more negative than it actually is. But I'm still super bullish about the environment. And perhaps my perspective is completely skewed because I'm talking to 18 to, to 29 year olds, mm-hmm. you know, half the time. And uh, and when they have that energy, it's really hard not to feel that energy. Yeah, absolutely. So you're you're doing a lot, but like like how do you manage your time? Yeah, not not well, right? It's just <laughs> it's trying to it's trying to keep up with everything. I think um, I was always a big fan of the the analogy that if you have these big rocks and big things you want to do, and you have all this other sand, that if you do the rocks first in terms of filling a pail, and then you pour in the sand, you'll get all that in. But if you put the sand in first and put the rocks in later, you don't get to the big things. And so, in terms of managing time, I'm always trying to prioritize the things that are impactful. And so, there's a list of 50 things I got to do every single day and it seems like at the end of the day it becomes 51 and 52. And so the managing of time is, is absolutely one thing that I don't do particularly well. I think if there's anything that does work well is that I, I, I do try to maintain this balance between um, the, the day-to-day, the personal life, the schedule, and because they all sort of blend in with each other, the, it does seem like I'm always able to tackle something that's at work or personal or you know at home kind of all at once. And I guess it's all helpful that they're all within you know a five mile radius of, of here. So um, so that's that's the only way that I can do it. Got it. What do you like to do outside of work? Yeah, right now it's just making sure my daughter grows up and uh, and and does well. And so it's a lot of just living in Boston and running around and taking advantage of all the fun stuff that's in the in the city. I wish I had a little more time to do things like ski and travel, but uh, yeah. but that's all the that's all the fun stuff. Well, David, thanks so much for taking the time for sharing you know the story of all these great companies that you've been a part of, and obviously all the other great things that you do to support the ecosystem. You no, know, really, really appreciate it, and I love what you guys are doing at Venture Fizz, right? Like I I listen to the podcasts, I see the news, um, use the boards in terms of recruiting and and uh, and seeing what's happening within the whole ecosystem. And so, if there's anything that I can do or other folks that I know that can help you with that mission, let me know. Sounds great. Well, thanks again. All right. Thanks very much. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.